Uh, let's look now at Romans chapter 9. And um, last week we looked at Romans chapter 8, which is one of the most encouraging passages in all of the scriptures. And we go from that mountaintop of God working all things for the good of His people to getting down to the nitty-gritty of who are His people. And uh, this has been designated by most preachers to be one of the, the toughest passages in Scripture. And yet, as we were worshiping this morning and as I was preparing all week, I, I just want you to know that it really shouldn't be viewed that way. Um, because if we confess to believe in a sovereign God, which, which we sang this morning, a God who is holy, 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 the only one in the universe that deserves worship, that deserves praise, then what we are saying is He can do whatever He wants to do because whatever He wants to do is going to be right, good, and true. Uh, because He is the God of the universe and we are not. And that's really where Paul goes um, as he begins to deal with the issue of why not all Israel came to know Christ and why much of Israel, many of the Jews, rejected the Messiah whom they had supposedly been preparing to receive. Um, And so there are many implications to us in the church today, and let's look at it now. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Paul wrote, I'm speaking the truth in Christ... I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had, uh, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice in God's, on, on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show you my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does, he stand, uh, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law, would uh, lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works... They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together. Our great God, you have told us that these doctrines are not for the babe but they are for the mature in Christ. And yet you've also told us that the mature in Christ are those that simply believe, that take you at your word, that believe that you are sovereign, that you are holy, that you are good, that you are righteous, that you are God and we are not. And so would you come by your Spirit this morning and would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of of your election and the glory of your predestination, the glory of your work to preserve a remnant. Because if you had not done that, we would be men without no hope. God, if you had just simply given the option to us, then we would all be doomed because our hearts are just that obstinate. Our hearts are just that full of unbelief and resistance to you. Oh God, I pray that you would use these truths this morning to draw us to worship and to praise you. Oh God, I need your spirit. Help me not to misspeak, oh God. Help me not to misrepresent. But oh God, help me not also to fall short of what your word says clearly. Help me to be a mouthpiece this morning that declares what you have said And, oh God, I pray that your Spirit would help us to to wrestle with these truths and you would wrestle us to faith. God, we thank you that we can trust your Spirit is with us. And we give our hearts to him now in Jesus' name. Amen. Every one of us in this room have people in our lives that we know if they were to die today, they would die without Jesus. 
Friends, the, the doctrines that we're going to talk about this morning, the, the reality that, that God has chosen a remnant to save and He has overlooked some, is not some theological um, um, object that, that we can use as a hobby to entertain ourselves. This doctrine of election is not just something that, that we can talk about and we can argue over and, and we can decide who's the smartest one in the room and who's the foolish. But this doctrine has consequences. And that's precisely how Paul is dealing with it. He, he talks about the anguish that his soul is in over his kinsmen. He does not approach this reality with some cold hardness and saying, Oh, God will do whatever he'll do. Therefore, I'm just not going to stress over it. He comes and he says, I am in deep anguish over my brothers, over, my Jew, over the Jews, my fellow brothers. Because they have rejected Christ and it's obvious that they're not part of the remnant and they don't know Jesus. And my heart is breaking. And if, it, if God gave me the option right now to trade places with them, I would do it. Unbelievable. So I want you to hear me this morning to say that the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election never produces the fruit of cold and, and, and uninterested and non-impassioned love for the world and a desire to see people come to Jesus. Paul is right here and he is in deep anguish longing for the salvation of his kinsmen and we must always be the same even and even especially as we believe the doctrine of predestination is taught in the Word. But what Paul is doing is he's helping us understand how we hold on to our faith and how we even strengthen our faith in the midst of knowing that those that we love are going to live and die outside of Christ. How can we have hope and how can we move forward when we know today that those we love are going to live and die outside of Christ? That's what Paul is dealing with. And especially, how can we have hope and where can we find comfort in the midst of, uh, of, of verses like 13? As it is written, God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. How can we have comfort in God's love and believe God's love when we read verses like uh, verse 18, So then God will have mercy on whomever He wills, and He will harden whoever He wills. <laughs> what I love about Paul is he does not hold anything back. He knows our questions. He knows where our hearts are going to go. And so he throws them out there for us to deal with and for him to deal with, and this is precisely what he's answering. But I want you to see that Paul doesn't give us a box that we can kind of look at, a box of answers that we can look at and just walk about along our way thinking everything is just okay. He is still in anguish even though he knows the answers. Paul says, I'm in anguish and I know the answers. (laughs) And so don't think that we're going to spend a few minutes together this morning and you're going to leave and not still be in anguish over your brothers and sisters who do not hope in Christ because that's how we should be this side of heaven. And yet also, Paul is not hopeless. <laughs> he, he ends this, this whole section in chapter 11 in doxology. 
he gets to the end of this whole thing and in, in verse 33 of chapter 11, and we're going to spend the next three weeks looking at this, and it's Chris's turn next week. Hallelujah. I get to sit down and let Chris uh, deal with this a little bit. Uh, but then I'll take the third week, and this is where we're, how it's going to end. I want to give you a little preview. Paul, you can almost see him raising his hands. Oh, the depth of the, the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. Paul ends in worship, and that is the goal. It's not perfect understanding. It's submission to the point that we can let God be God, and we're good with that. So let's get to work. We've got a lot cut out for us. We've got a work cut out for us. Let's look at a few things this morning as we begin this, this march through these three chapters. The first thing that we have to see, and, and what I'm going to do, is I'm going to work from the end of the chapter back. I'm going to work at the end of chapter 9 back. And I want us to see this. Salvation is all of God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is all of God's grace... Through faith alone and Christ alone. You say, that's what Paul has been saying the entire book of Romans. Exactly. And that's the point. He does not leave the essence of the message of Romans to talk about predestination and election and God saving the remnant. Why? Well... This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, and the Lenten season kicked off. And uh, that's just a period of time on the Christian calendar uh, that we set aside between Wednesday and Easter Sunday um, to, to be encouraged to give up something, to be reminded of the suffering of Christ and the humiliation of Christ and, uh, and draw near to Him in repentance. But whereas Christian practices like that are, are good, there's nothing wrong with practices like that, uh, I have found in my life that I am not that good. Uh, and here's what typically happens when I approach times like this. I mean, if I'm giving up caffeine or chocolate or Facebook or whatever it is, to the extent that I succeed in giving up what I've decided to give up, I find myself not drawing closer to God but further away because there's a seed in me of self-righteousness. And what I find is that when I'm not drinking caffeine or I'm not eating chocolate, as if that ever has really happened in my life, but let's just say figuratively, um, if I'm not eating Doritos or whatever it is that I love to eat, and I see somebody else eating Doritos or drinking caffeine or, or you know, I hear about them posting on Facebook, then, then you know, I don't say, oh, how I love God. I say, oh, how I love me because I have the willpower to not do what you're doing, you sinner. And I might not be saying it, I'm not saying it, but that's what's in my heart. I'm better than you because, look, I have some grounds upon which to feel good about me other than Christ. There's no doubt as you look at the Old Testament that God chose a certain people and a certain race, if you will, to reveal himself to the Jews, the nation of Israel. And there's also no doubt that God did that, if you read the Old Testament at all, you see that God did that solely by His grace, not because they were better than any other nation. He did it unconditionally, if you will, simply because He is a God of love. He was not obligated to do it, but He did choose a nation, and that nation is Israel, and a people, and that people are the Jews. 
However, what you see throughout history is that they did not respond with great gratitude and love for God, saying, we're going to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, but oh, look at us. We are God's people. And one day, Jesus is showing up, and he's going to put us large and in charge. We are going to be the people, and we're going to now be the oppressors. You see, they, they took the, the, the blessing of God and perverted it to make it this honor that lifted them above all the other peons around them. Our God is going to come, and he's going to kill all of y'all, and he's going to put us in charge. You see, the seed of self-righteousness is in all of us, and it is so dangerous. Do you see that in yourself? Do you see your tendency to feel better than others based on some aspect of your life? One thing Paul is addressing is that the Jews lean deep into the reality of their Jewishness. Now, we as Americans would never do that. We, we would never think that we're better than other people, that God somehow favors us in America more than... Yeah, you get the point. I mean, because there has been, you know, there, there have been revivals because this country was founded by those that lived a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Somehow, we have become convinced that we are God's favorite and chosen people of all the world. And we see it even in our politics, and maybe especially in our politics, uh, by those who don't even claim the name of Jesus. And that's exactly where the Jews were. And what Paul is saying is that the Jews were not chosen because they were good inherently. Look at verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, I want you to know that the hardest thing for self-righteous people to do is to believe grace. The hardest thing for us to do as human beings is to believe that there is nothing we can do to get God's favor but believe the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because there is nothing more offensive to us as human beings than to be told that you can't do anything. It doesn't matter what you give up. It doesn't matter what you do. You can give your whole life to Christian mission. You can do this or that or whatever, but there is nothing you can do that will get you in better with God other than believing the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is only by grace in His finished work, faith in His finished work, that that gets you all the favor of God. And all your works are but as filthy rags. That is the hardest thing to believe. And what Paul is showing us here is that the Jews were not lost because God chose them to be lost, but they were lost because they chose to reject Jesus. Do you hear me? The Jews were actively engaging in unbelief in the gospel of Jesus, and that's what Paul is saying. 
He's saying they, 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 they weren't lost because God didn't choose to choose them, but they were lost because they rejected Christ. They actively rejected Jesus. They did so because He didn't come with a message that empowered them, but He came with a message that said, look, the first will be last and the last will be first. He came with a message not saying, okay, Jews, we're going to set up the kingdom and now all the, you know, Rome and all these other people are going to bow down to us. No. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who mourn. And they wanted to hear, blessed are those who are large and in charge. And God said, no, that's not the way of my kingdom. At the heart of God's work in the world as He is moving men and women, boys and girls, to admit their sin, weakness, and indeed helplessness, and to cry out to Him. And so, as we enter this whole conversation of God's election, the question that must be at the forefront of your heart and mind is this. Am I trusting Jesus Christ alone to put me in favor with God? Do I believe that it was Jesus' perfect submission to the law... Him living up under the law that, that is my righteousness and my reason to be able to come into this place this morning and worship God as the God of salvation. Because if that is not what you are believing, then you are lost. And Paul wants us to hear that. You are lost and it's not God's fault. You are lost and it's your fault. Because you have the blessing today to sit right here and to hear the message of the gospel. And you have the opportunity to receive and believe that gospel. And the only thing holding you back this morning is your own heart. And so trust in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. Look at Israel and learn. You're not just in because you're in here. You're not just in because of the family you're in. You're in because you trust Christ. Do you trust Christ? And then secondly, we need to understand that God has chosen a remnant to embrace Christ. God has chosen a remnant. He says it very clearly. That He has chosen a remnant to embrace the gospel. Well, how do we think about this? Friends, I want you to hear me this morning. I listened, I got on YouTube and just started listening to arguments against election and predestination. Because I am fascinated. Look, I tried to give this sermon up all week. Um, I tried, even walking in, I looked at Chris Oliver, I said, Brother, you want to preach this sermon this morning? It's yours. I'll give it to anybody, all right? I don't love to talk about these things because I don't understand these things, okay? But here's the reality. The Bible teaches election from beginning to end. When God reveals Himself in the Old Testament, He he revealed Himself to Abraham to the exclusion of everybody else. He chose Abraham. Why, Why doesn't that offend us? Why didn't He choose some other guy? I don't know. But the reality is, He chose Abraham and nobody else. And you march through the Bible and you see God chooses to whom He wants to reveal Himself, how He wants to reveal Himself, when He wants to reveal Himself, and how in the world is that even debatable? 
I have never heard one substantive argument against this because it's in the Bible. This is not Reformed theology. This is Bible. You've got to cut the Bible out. You've got to have this, this botched up Bible to get away from this. And that's why we preach books of the Bible at this church. Because nobody would choose to preach Romans 9. Well, maybe some... Well, I grew up with some folks in the Presbyterian church that probably would. But uh, <laughs> on a normal day, not many would choose Romans 9 to come in here because it's not the greatest feel-good passage in the Bible. But it's in the Bible. And I don't know how you can argue that. God has chosen a remnant. So how do we think about it? It's not, is it there? The question is, what do we do with what's there? That's what I want us to think about now in this next point. God's chosen a remnant to embrace the gospel. A man by the name of uh, Fiorello LaGuardia was mayor of New York in 1935 at the height of the Depression. If you've ever flown into New York, you've heard of LaGuardia. Um, and that's typically where the, the cheapest flights are in New York. So um, anyway, LaGuardia Airport is named after the mayor of New York from 1935. Well, uh, LaGuardia one night in the middle of January uh, went to night court and gave the judge a night off. And he sat on the bench, and um, they brought before him a woman that had stolen a loaf of bread. And he asked her to plead her case, and she said that her daughter had been abandoned by her husband, and her daughter was sick and could not work, and her grandchildren, this woman's grandchildren, therefore, were starving. And so she stole this loaf of bread. Well, the store owner was there, and he stood up and he said, I hear this woman's story, but guess what? The law must be upheld. And Mayor LaGuardia, sitting on the the bench that night, said, You're right, the law needs to be upheld. He said, Ten dollars or ten days in jail. And as soon as he said it, he reached into his back pocket and he pulled out his wallet and he pulled out a ten dollar bill and he put it down and he said, Paid. And then he looked in the courtroom and he said this, he said, And not only am I paying her debt, but I I am fining everybody in this courtroom, including you, store owner, 50 cents for living in a city where a woman, a grandmother, has to steal a loaf of bread to feed her starving children. This is a true story. Um, Give you a little better perspective when you're flying into LaGuardia now, not as cold and sterile as it typically is. That woman left the courtroom, not just with her debt paid, she left with $47.50. Now, friends, that is grace, kind of. (laughs) That is election, kind of. It holds up, the the illustration holds up in this sense. It holds up in the sense that um, a judge standing before a guilty people chooses one person to not only pardon but to bless with, with riches. But that's where it really ends. Because this grandmother makes us look way too good. Uh, because we are not noble in our sin as she was noble in her sin. And I'm telling you right now, there's nobody in here probably that wouldn't steal uh, bread in order to give to their starving grandchildren. But here's where it falls. Our sin is not noble. This is a better illustration. If if, um, Mayor um, LaGuardia was sitting on the bench and he was sitting in front of a group of people who had falsely accused his own son, 
of crimes, took him out on the streets and beat him, and then nailed him to a cross and be left to die. And then him, him come in and pick one or two. You see, none of them deserved it. Nobody in that courtroom, including this woman, deserved the treatment that she got. No one would call a judge unjust for holding up the law. And that's precisely how we need to look at election or predestination. God is rejecting some and accepting others. It's not some cold exchange, but it's relational. God chose a people who rejected Him. That's the whole story of the Old Testament. God pursuing a people, forgiving them time after time after time. He gives them bread when they're in the desert. And what do they say? We're sick of eating bread. He leads them through the sea on dry ground. And what do they say? Our lives were better in Egypt. Take us back to slavery. Every single thing that God did to bless His people, they stiff-armed God, they rejected Him personally. This is the story of God with His people. And so it is personal with God, and because we see the Son of Man, we have to understand that none of us deserve His grace. The issue that makes us so uncomfortable with the idea of God choosing a people for Himself to the exclusion of others is that we believe that everyone should receive a fair chance. Well, guess what? Everyone does. That's what Paul has been building up to. In in chapter 5, he shows us in in, um, Romans chapter 5 that Adam represents us all because Adam is a good representation of us all. He said, we have all fallen from God's mercy and grace through Adam. Why? Because none of us would have done any better. And how arrogant to think, well, it's not fair to judge me by Adam. If I had been in that garden, I would have done. That just shows, that proves the point. You're arrogant. Do you see it? I mean, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not even one. And when God gives us the law, He tells us in Romans 3, the purpose of the law, it's to show us how how wicked we are, how far we have fallen, that we might look down so that we might look up and say, Yes, Jesus, because You are the essence of the law and You fulfilled it for me. And then You became my sin. And You died for my sin so that now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul talks about a remnant, and then he says this. I know what you're going to ask. Is God unjust to choose some over others? And he answers, no and by no means. He is no more unjust than a judge who stands before a people and condemns the guilty person to their sentence. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, left us a remnant, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You see, the gospel is the power of God to change us, but the point is we need to be changed. 
The only way that we will receive the gospel is if God gives us a new heart to receive the gospel. And we don't like that. But, but it can't work the way that many of us want it to work. It can't be just God holding it out there saying, Here is the, here's the apple, now just take it and eat it, because none of us would want the apple. And none of us do want the apple unless God comes in and makes us hungry for the apple. We would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah who rejected God, who rejected His servants, who rejected the message of repentance. And indeed killed the servants of God or sought to kill the servants of God. That's who we would be in our own power. Can you see now why God must intervene? The way that we think about election is this. Not God helpless and in heaven saying, I'm just going to make salvation possible for a people. And oh, you know, some will accept and some will reject. But it's more of God saying, I know that if I don't intervene among my people, that they will resist me so much, every single person will stiff-arm me so hard that none will take me and none will respond to the gospel. And so I will intervene. And I'm not a racist. I'm not just going to do it for one nation. I'm going to do it for the whole world. I read one theologian this week, N.T. Wright, who said God did was faithful to His promise to bring salvation to the world through Israel because Israel rejected the gospel, and so God went from Israel to the whole world. Isn't that crazy? That's what God has done. He has gone to the whole world, and that was always His His ambition and His purpose. He always said, He said to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. We see in Revelation 7-9 that at the end of time, every tribe, every language, every tongue will unite with one chorus that the Lamb of God is the Savior of the world. And so God chose a nation that He might bless the world. And that's precisely what He's doing today. And if God had not intervened in human history, we would be without hope. So praise God that He has saved any of us. The greatest injustice is not, hear me, the greatest injustice is not predestination, but it's the cross of Jesus Christ. Because the one who is innocent, the one who is the very Son of God, the only righteous one in the universe, became sin for us. That's unjust. It's not unjust for God to choose a people. It's unjust for God to choose His own Son to have to redeem a people. And then thirdly, God's Word has not failed. God's Word has not failed. We had a a neighbor come over Friday night with their three-year-old child. And... We had um, Brayden and Bennett at the house, and they were playing, and we started talking about parenting. And the mother said, you know, we were talking about talking back, which is what two- and three-year-olds do. I mean, that's their purpose in life, to talk back to their parents. And that's, you know, what her daughter was doing. And um, so we were talking about that, and the neighbor said this. She said this. She said, you know, I've just gotten to a point where I look at my three-year-old when she asks why, And guess what she says? Because I told you so. You see, 
There's nothing to gain by reasoning with a two- or three-year-old most of the time. You can stand there, and we've done it as parents and grandparents. We stand there and we say, don't go into that road or you're going to be squashed. You're going to be hit by that FedEx truck or that bus. And they just look and they have no idea what we're talking about. They don't have the mental capability to to make those connections and say, oh, you have to tell them, do not go into that street because I am telling you so. And you hope that they trust us because we're the ones that are feeding them. We're the ones that are clothing them. We're the ones that are putting them in a warm bed. We're the ones that are taking them into the house. We're the ones that are changing their diapers. We're the ones that are blessing them. And you hope that it's in the context of that relationship that they will go, Oh, okay, I'm going to... Yeah, you, you know what you're talking about. Let me, let me tell you something. That is the only way that we are going to get to a position where we read Romans chapter 9 and we're in anguish still, but we worship God. Is when we come to this and we realize that we are less than three-year-olds dealing with a parent. And there is absolutely no way, it doesn't matter what God gives us, there is no way that we're ever going to understand His wisdom and and His understanding and how He justifies love and justice, law and grace. There's no way that we're going to fully understand that. But as we come to this con, as we come to this, this whole topic, we have to understand that He's given us a context within which we can trust Him. And it's called the cross. Because this is how he dealt with love and justice. This is how he dealt with judgment and grace for you and me and for his people. He put his son in the middle of his judgment. He made his beloved son the object of his wrath. He didn't just say, oh, guess what? I woke up today and I felt better than I did in the Old Testament days. And so now today's a day of reigning grace and salvation. And now I'm a God of love and I'm not that moody God that I was I've grown up. No. He said, justice must stand. And I love a people so much that I'm willing to dispense justice on my own son. The only way and the only right way for us to think about love and justice is to think about it at the foot of the cross and say, I don't understand it, but I get that. And praise God. Because He didn't put me on that cross. He didn't, he didn't put me up there and he didn't hold up his law and say, now jump, jump, jump. Wear this, don't wear that, do this and don't do that. And just maybe at the end of your life, I'll let you in. But he said, look, I I see the beginning from the end and you're never going to get in based on the law. And so I'm going to send my son. And he's going to be the perfect, perfect one who lives under the law for you. And then I'm going to make him the essence of your sin, and I'm going to pour out the wrath of hell upon him so that I can love you. So when we think about election, when we, when we think about love and justice, we have to think about it in light of the cross. It's the only place that we really need to go and us come out the other side worshiping God. You say, my God is a God of love, and He would never overlook any for salvation. He makes it available to all. It's another question that Paul is dealing with here. It's the question of our day. And friends, 
I've already told you, if, if that's how he works, we're all doomed. But here's a little, a little deeper side to it. Who in the world are we to tell God the ins and outs of love? We can't do that. The only way, we feel like we're the most tolerant, loving culture in, in, in the history of mankind. We're willing to be inclusive of everybody. It doesn't matter who you love or what you love. We're inclusive. We love, we love, we love. We don't have a clue about love. God is love. The only way we have any desire for inclusiveness, any desire for love, is because we are made in His image. He is love, and we have just a smidge of that love and an understanding of that love. Do you understand that God cannot stop being loving, but He also can't stop being a judge? He must rectify those two, and He is perfectly just, therefore, and perfectly loving if He never chose anybody. But He's chosen a remnant, and He's chosen many. The question that this comes down to is this, and it's simple. Are you willing to let God be God, or are you going to stand in judgment upon God? Are, are you going to let God be God, or are you going to stand in judgment on God and say, if that's who God is, then I don't want Him? Dear friends, the reality is, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is real. It is, He loves sinners like you and me. And we're going to see next week, if we would but repent, and anyone who does repent and claim the name of Jesus will be saved. And so if there's any inkling in your heart, any desire whatsoever right now to confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do it, because God is at work in you. That's what Philippians 2:12 says, "Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for God is the one who is at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. God is at work in you. And if you believe the gospel today, then fall on your knees and say, "God, thank you for my salvation." And if you are feeling called to Christ right now, then fall on your knees and say, "Lord Jesus, I accept you and thank you that you are pursuing me." I have been so deaf, I've been so blind. Ephesians 1, 11-14, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works out all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first, first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And then finally in our chapter, verses 23-24, through 24, Romans 9, 23-24, "...in order to make the riches of God's glory for vessels of mercy..." which He has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. Dear friends, God is at work saving a people, and let's not lose sight of that. Because that's the thrust of this text. God is at work. 
If He is at work in you, dear friend, rejoice in Him. And may we let God be God, and may we give Him glory today for being the sovereign one over everything, including salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You this morning that You're a God that loves us, and You're a God that, in the midst of that love, works so mysteriously, so confusingly, that we in the very same moment can be in utter anguish over those we love and are lost, and yet utterly in love with You, worshiping You, declaring that Your wisdom is greater than our wisdom, that Your ways are better than our ways. And so, Father, I pray that You would use this passage to draw us to deep worship of You, to greater submission to You, and that, Lord Jesus, You would receive glory You would receive honor and praise from your people. And we would not kick against you like a three-year-old, but we would fall before you and say, we don't understand. We wish maybe at times it were different, but you are God and we are not. Would you work that work of grace in our hearts and lives? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.